Thank you for listening in to this week's sermon from Restoration Church Bryan. To learn more about Restoration, you can find us online at restorationbryan.com. We are so grateful for all those who are able to listen online, and we pray the message encourages you and challenges you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you are not already connected to a local church, we would love to invite you to join us for worship. If you are listening from another city, we pray that this message is a great supplement to your walk with Christ, and our hope is that you would have a gospel-centered local church that you call home. Thanks again for listening. Well, if you got your, if you got your Bibles, Acts 17, hopefully you're there, 22 through, through 34, and we're going to dive into our text this morning where we're talking this morning about uh, having gospel clarity in a Christless culture. Uh, for years, I would, I would take our students on these frontliners mission trips, uh, and, and I've talked about this before, but we would, we would partner with local churches uh, to help promote these, these four-day worship and, and evangelistic preaching events, uh, but then we would take our 7th through 12th grade students, and we would go door-to-door, knocking on doors, uh, sharing Jesus in whatever city, whatever state we were in. So uh, we were in Texas a couple of years. We were in El Dorado, Arkansas, Tampa, Florida, Chattanooga, Tennessee. We were in Colorado one year. Uh, and, and I am I am fairly certain that at least a few folks prayed to receive Jesus because they didn't want to break the heart of the of the twelve year old standing at their door, right? Like, we've got like seventh grader Sally just like shaking in her boots, like sharing Jesus, and some dudes like, okay, okay, uh, uh, yes, <laughs> like I I receive Jesus right now. <laughs> um, but you know, armed with Bibles and tracks, uh, we we saw we saw God do some pretty incredible uh, things. And though I, I will be the first to admit that that door to door is probably not uh, the most effective uh, form of making disciples of of Jesus. But as I think back to to those my days in youth ministry and doing those frontliner trips. Uh, you know, our, our approach, in our approach, there was this underlying assumption of uh, religiosity, right? And, and what I mean by that is it could, be, it could be seen and heard even in some of the questions that we would ask. We, we would ask the question, hey, if you were to die tonight, uh, why, like why should God let you into heaven? And, and that, that question might be, it might be okay in certain parts of the Bible Belt, uh, but the culture's changing, right? The culture's changing, and just like the people of Athens, a lot of people today they don't they don't believe in in hell, they don't believe in heaven, they 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 don't believe in God, much much less the God of the Bible. And, and so, what do you like? What do you do, right? What do you what do you do? Uh, in a culture with no foundation of Bible and, and belief. And, and I would say, Christian, what, what, about, what about you? Christian, what about you? Maybe that's you. Maybe you're, maybe you're saying uh, you're, you're like at a complete loss on how to connect with others who, who may, be, may be spiritually inclined, but they are scripturally illiterate, Right? Um, how, 
how can you clarify Jesus in a culture with no construct for Christ? Uh, and, and so like Paul in Athens, church, we've got to get to this place where we learn how to engage and how to live and how to speak with gospel clarity in a, in a Christless culture. Amen? Like we have got to get to this place where we, where we can engage. And so this morning, uh, we, we, actually, we actually have four points, right? I know that's crazy, uh, but I'm going to be sneaky and just wrap the fourth point into my clothes. Uh, and so really, it's, it's three, it's just disguised. Um, but if you're following along in your bulletin, uh, or, or it, we'll have it up on the screen, as we look at verse 22 and 23, the first thing that we see as we, as we talk about gospel clarity in a crisis culture is you've got to get to the heart. You've got to get to the heart. Once you look at your neighbor, tell them, get to the heart. And look at your other neighbor and tell them, get to the heart. So, so church, I, I want you to picture this moment. Paul, Paul is standing in the Areopagus, right? He's, he's on Mars Hill, he, uh, this, this high place devoted to the Greek god Ares. He, he's surrounded, right? Surrounded by the Greeks and all their gods and all their idols. And, and so the question is, is he, will he cave under pressure and, and, and give the culture a free pass, or will he engage and get to the gospel? Because remember, these are not Israelites, right? These are, <clears throat> these are not uh, Israelites who are steeped in the teachings of the Torah and the Old Testament. Like that, That's not their foundation. These are, these are Gentiles with little to, to no understanding uh, of the covenant-keeping God of Israel. And so Paul begins by going after their hearts. He starts with this phrase, I perceive that in every way you are religious. If you look at the text. And though there, there's, there's not consensus, uh, I, I read probably half the commentaries I read said that Paul's being sarcastic, which I kind of lean that way. But then the other half say, no, he's, he's genuinely complimenting them. I, I don't know if we can definitively say, but here's what he did understand. Paul recognized their reverence for the divine. Paul recognized their, their reverence for the divine. He, he found common ground around this. Humans are built for worship. Humans are built for worship. That, that word worship, if you look at the, the, the end of verse 23, that, that word for worship in the Greek is the word eusebio, and it means to show devotion. It means to, to show devotion or to worship. So restoration fam, devotion is, is connected to our desires and our affections. And, and, and our affections and our desires, they're tied to our hearts. And so Paul understood that even uh, that the, the, the hearts of the Athenians, man, they, they long to worship someone or something, even, even if their worship was terribly misplaced. He, he saw this within their hearts, this desire, this, the, this something that propelled them to, to worship, that pu- pushed them to worship. Uh, 
out of curiosity, in, in my extensive research last week on Greek uh, gods and goddesses.net, um, <laughs> I wanted to uh, I wanted to check out just like you know how like what's what's this god situation with the Greeks? And I, I you, you come to realize that the the Greeks had a god for everything. Right? They had a God for everything. And some of them, like we're familiar with, like, we know the names, like Apollo and Ares, and you maybe you've heard of Dionysius and Hades and Poseidon and Zeus, but but others, others were just like downright comical. Let me I'll give you two examples, right? One that I read up this this week, uh, again, uh, on Greek gods and goddesses.net. Not sure if it is the uh, formative uh, website on all things Greek. We're gonna say it is. Um, but one of the Greek gods was this god, Aristeus, who is the minor patron god of animal husbandry, beekeeping, and fruit trees. <laughs> Dud, right? Like, but it says he was the son of Apollo. Well, praise God for that. Then uh, you also had Prychus. Prychus was the immortal father, so like it's going well, right? The immortal father of sea goats, uh, <laughs> who, who, wah, wah, who was made into, later was made into the Capricorn constellation. And so like, talk, like Prychus, talk about getting the short end of the God stick, right? Zeus is over here with his thunder and lightning, and Prychus has got his sea goats, right? Um, but the Athenians were so, they had a God for everything, they were so super spiritual that uh, Paul points out that they even had an altar to the unknown God. They had an altar to the unknown God, I guess just to make sure that all their bases were covered. Howard Marshall says the Greek traveler Pausanias in eighty one fifty tells us that near Athens there were altars. They they found these altars that that were uh, uh, devoted to both named and unknown gods. In fact, uh, some of the early church fathers, Tertullian and Jerome, they they wrote about this. They bear witness to that there was an altar there in Athens to uh, the unknown gods. And and Jerome says that Paul deliberately changed the wording to suit his purposes. But what's interesting is that, that that Greek word for unknown is the word agnostos. That Greek word for unknown is the word agnostos, where we get our word agnostic or agnosticism. And in the sense is that uh, of having no knowledge or, or no acquaintance with. Tony Morita, he says this, he says, in the synagogue, Paul's text was the Old Testament. You roll up in the synagogue, you're opening up the Old Testament. But in Athens, it was an inscription. And, and, and so the point, Marita says this, the point of conflict became obvious because uh, Paul's saying God has revealed himself. He, he, he is not unknowable. And, and so Paul, but Paul addresses the Athenians at the desire level. He, he essentially, here, here's what's going on. He essentially says, say, hey, I see your devotion. I, I see your worship. But I also know that you know that there is something missing. You know that there's something missing. There's something that you're not acquainted with. And I'm here to proclaim it to you and to make it known. And so here's, here's the application. 
For there to be gospel clarity in a, in a Christless culture, you've got to address people's hearts. You've got, to, you've got to connect with them on the desire level. Like you can't just stay within like the structures and forms of religiosity, right? Like you, you, have, to, you have to address people's hearts. <clears throat> and one of, my, one of my greatest fears, one of my greatest fears is that the American church is filled with a lot of church members who, who, who are really lost because they, they, they intellectually agree with certain things about Jesus, but, but their hearts are still devoted to and really desiring something else. People, people worship what they, what they love. People really, they, they, they worship what they, what they really love. And that's why the great commandment, the great, the great commandment says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The great commandment reveals that, that loving God is the main thing because God, listen, God is after our hearts. So that's why Paul, Paul starts there. Paul starts with their hearts. Second thing this morning is this, as we look at, Verse 24 through 27, we see uh, you've got to give them a glimpse of God's character. Amen? You've got to give them a glimpse of God's character. I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell them a glimpse of God's character. Look at, look at, your, look at your other neighbor and say a glimpse of God's character. See, the, the problem... The problem with the Greeks and their, and their pantheon of gods was that they... They projected man's sinful traits onto God, or, or should I say their gods? They, they understood deity in these, in these anthropomorphic terms, and, and they, so they, but, but inevitably, they just ascribed to the gods the, the flaws of man, and so they said, well, th- this, is, uh, this is how we see God, and they projected their own mess and brokenness and sin onto their view of God, and so, but notice Paul Paul doesn't go into this like hardcore apologetic mode and give six reasons for the existence of God. He, he unapologetically begins where Genesis 1 does, with the existence of God. And, and so Paul, uh, though the Paul would, he would write the letter to the Romans a little bit later, I, I think Romans 1, 19 through 20, it captures Paul's point. If you want to jot this down, Romans 1, 19 through 20. Paul later would say this, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. See, Paul Paul challenges them to see beyond the Areopagus and their, and their, the, 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 the polytheistic mess that was in front of them. Tony Evans says this. Evans says he unashamedly declares that God is the source, ruler, and sustainer of life. And church, 
Remember, there's two groups that Paul's addressing. You got, and, and he's ultimately offending both groups because the Epicureans, they believe, they were deists, right? They just believe like, well, there's a God, there might be a God, because there's people like this in our culture. Well, yeah, like I see, like there's, there may be a, a God, but he's not personal, right? Like he's not involved in our stuff. He maybe, maybe he spun it into motion, but he's not around. And, and, and Paul, Paul, what he says here. And 24 through 27 is going to be offensive to the Epicureans. And in the Stoics, uh, they're going to be offended as well because the Stoics, they, they clung to the, their, their pantheism, their view of God. God is in everything. And in response to their multiplicity of gods, Paul boldly declares, he says, no, listen, there, there is one true God who created the world and everything in it in verse 24. In echoing Solomon's confession in 1 Kings 8.27, Paul, Paul lets the Athenians know, basically he says, hey, listen, God's not going to be domesticated, okay? Like you're, try, like you're trying, but God will not be domesticated. He's not going to fit in your stuff. He's not going to fit in, in your boxes or in your structures. We, and so we, like, we can build, we may build our houses of worship, but God is not confined to them, Amen. I don't know if you, who, who has traveled over, has anybody traveled to Europe? If you travel to Europe, you, you'll, you'll go into these places where you, where you see houses of worship. The, the streets are lined with these churches that are either long abandoned or they've been converted. Uh, they've become pubs or businesses. And, and we, we refer to much of Europe as, as post-Christian, right? And you might be tempted to equate the dilapidation of these these church buildings and their removal, the removal of these houses of worship with the removal of God's presence. But listen, that would be a grave mistake because it doesn't really matter what's going on with the structures. God, God is alive and well. Amen. He's alive and well. In fact, it was said, I read this this, this past week, it was said in the French Revolution by those who are seeking to tear down every system within France, including, including places of religious worship. Those French revolutionaries said, we will pull down your steeples so that you will not be reminded of your superstitions. We're going to pull down your steeples so you're not reminded of your ridiculous superstitions. And to this, the Christians, the French Christians would respond, yes, you, you could pull down your steeples, but you will not be able to rip the stars out of space. Verse 25, Paul says, God... God is not served by human hands. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. That, that Greek word for serve is the word therapeuo. Uh, and, it, and it means what it sounds like. It actually means to heal or to cure. The sense is to have one's needs attended to by another. Um, and, and so what a, what a picture Paul is saying that with all your with all your idols, with all your buildings and your practices, like you guys are operating like you can do something for God, like you're going to heal God, like you're going to you're going to fill up in God something that he lacked. 
Like, how ridiculous is that? Like, you're going you're gonna to add life to God, but yet it is God, this is why he says at the end of verse 25, no, it's God who gives to all mankind life and breath. And in, 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 in Greek culture, that, that, that word life, the, the Greek word zoe, was, was connected, was associated with the Greek god Zeus. So Paul Paul was, what he was doing is really confronting Zeus head on and saying, no, Yahweh is the one true God who is the source of life for all people. Now, I love, I love verse 26. Y'all look at verse 26 with me. It says, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by hand. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. Then 26, and he made from one man, Adam, from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having, check this out, determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. I love verse 26. It's it's actually a not-so-subtle dig at the Greeks because the Greeks, they were, they were steeply entrenched in this cultural and, and racial superiority complex. They just thought they, thought they, were, they were the people, right? The, the Greeks thought of themselves as superior to others. In fact, they had a name for others. They called anybody who wasn't Greek was a barbarian, right? Like, you're out. You're actually a barbarian, right? I'm a Greek. That, that's, so that's how, that's how they roll. So Paul points back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27 that, hey, guess what? We're all image bearers, amen? Like we are all image bearers of God. Granted, the, the image of God has been marred by, by sin, but this is the one thing that we have in common with every single person breathing air on planet earth and like we forget this culturally we forget this and it goes back paul says to our common ancestry in adam and fyi just just as a this is free this morning both paul and jesus affirmed the historicity of adam and so just remember, if you want to uh, throw out Adam, just, just remember you're saying that Jesus got it wrong. Tony Evans says this. He says this about verse 26. He says, this affirms that the human race exists because of a personal creator. Amen? Not some, Evans says, not, not some random impersonal evolutionary process he goes on he says it also affirms the historicity of adam and the essential unity and dignity of the human race leaving no basis for racial superiority and then at the end of verse 26 paul he he says this god determined the the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place in the context is he's talking about the nations it goes back to the beginning of 26 where he said every nation and, and, and so, the, again, he's painting this picture of this transcendent, sovereign God that, that lays out the boundaries and the barriers of even nations. I, I, um, a month or so ago, started watching this Amazon Prime show. I've watched a handful of the, the first season. It's called the, the Man in the High Castle. 
And it's, it's kind of it's weird, it's slow, I don't know if I'm going to finish it, it's losing my attention, but the premise of the show is, is kind of fascinating because it, it's set in this alternate world where Nazi Germany, the Nazis and the Axis powers won World War II. And so in the show... The, the boundaries of the U.S. are divided into east and west. And, and uh, the east is controlled by the Nazis. And, and the, the west is controlled by Japanese power. And the, and the idea is, it's like, it's really intriguing. But here's the reality. Uh, uh, Nazi Germany uh, lost World War II. Amen? Like, can we get an amen on that? Like, I'm grateful for that. Um, and you can certainly say, here, here's my point, you, you can certainly say that this, this can be ascribed to uh, military leaders and generals and presidents and prime ministers and the heroic efforts of both soldiers and, and citizens alike. But ultimately, here's what Paul is saying, it was and is God who sovereignly establishes borders and boundaries in the rise and the fall of nations and peoples and kingdoms. Amen? It's God. And so like, he's, he's painted this picture of creator God, life giver God, transcendent God, God who is sovereign over the nations. But what Paul shares next is actually the most important part. It's because, because he says this all-powerful Self-sufficient, sovereign God who is transcendent. Guess what? He's come near. Amen? He's come near. That's what we're going to celebrate all next month is that He would come near and be God would be with us. It was always His plan. We see this in verse 27 for His creation to seek, to seek, and to feel their way toward Him. We'll, we'll talk about that word feel in a moment. Because he's not far. But even in this statement, there, there, there's, he's pointing to our spiritual blindness. There's a recognition of sin's sort of disastrous effects and thus the need for the work and the intervention of Jesus. I, I read up on this this week. Tony Morita talked about it. He, he said, Paul, what Paul's doing here is actually masterful because he says the image Paul gives is that of blind people groping for God. He gives this image of blind people groping for God. He says, James Boyce says that the word used here for reach, uh, for reach out or feel, is the Greek word. It's the same Greek word that the Greek poet Homer used in the well-known story of the Cyclops, right? And so the, uh, Marita says, the one-eyed giant captured Odysseus and his men but, like, I don't know how this worked, but Odysseus uh, got the Cyclops drunk, right? <laughs> he gets him drunk, and he blinds him with a sharp stake. And though Odysseus wanted to get out of the cave and find his men, doing so was difficult because the Cyclops, even though he had been blinded, uh, was, was still groping around trying to find and kill the hero uh, in, in Homer's work, in, in Homer's writing. And so Marita says this, in using this word then, it's as if Paul is saying, in our sin, we are as unseeing and blinded as the Cyclops. We're just feeling around and we're groping around. And here's the good news. Ready? Praise God He didn't leave us in that blinded state. Amen? Man, praise God 
That this creator God, this big transcendent God, didn't just kind of stay detached like, well, they'll figure it out, right? <laughs> he, he's not aloof, right? No, he's not detached. He, he, is, he is near. He came near. He is with us. In fact, he has come near not only to reveal himself, but to redeem us. Amen? He came near to restore us and to make things right. The third thing we see from from the text is we see that Paul, Paul, he he learned to glean from, but but not don't don't lean on the culture. Right? We see this in verse 28 through 30. Right? We, we, We glean from. But we don't lean on the culture. I want, I want you to look at your neighbor. Tell them, glean, uh, glean, but don't lean. <laughs> tell, tell your other neighbor, hey, glean, but don't lean. <laughs> Y'all, I don't know if you realize this, but in verse 28, check this out. Paul, Paul hijacks their Greek poetry devoted to Zeus. This is awesome. He hijacks their Greek poetry devoted to Zeus, and he uses it to engage around the gospel. He quotes their Grecian poets. There's two poets, and I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation, but one was Epimenides, Epimenides, the other, uh, his name was Eratus, and he quotes their own poets who had written poetry to Zeus. And D.L. Moody says this, he says, these two references to Greek poets, they don't mean that Paul endorsed their view of God. But he had no qualms about using these pagan poets to support his argument if some of what they had written coincided with God's revealed truth. Amen? And so, I remember as a youth pastor, my, my last year in youth ministry, uh, 2009 was my last year. Of, uh, I'd been in youth ministry about seven, seven or eight years, and, and it was my final year. And in, in, in our, our graduating class that year, uh, we had so many super sharp students in my youth ministry. In, in fact, uh, there were, uh, we had about 20 students, and 10 of those were in the top 20 of the graduating class at Angleton High School. And, and, and I remember they, they were super... They were super intelligent, but they were also heavily, <clears throat> heavily influenced by the culture. They were also a little emo, but well, it's neither here nor there. But they were, they were immersed, immersed in their, in their media and in their music and in the culture. And, and so naturally, I, like, you know, because this is what you do. I, I started quoting their favorite songs uh, during Wednesday night uh, worship services, right? <laughs> uh, I'm over here, like, picking apart the lyrics to Linkin Park uh, to, to show them, amen, uh, to show them that, that, they're, that, that, that Jesus is the solution to what even their modern-day poets are writing about, and so what was Paul's point? Church, Paul's point was that if, if we are image bearers of the one true God created for worship, we need to turn away from false worship. That's why he says in verse 30, he talks about these times of ignorance, right? And it connects us back. It connects us back to verse 23. 
See, the Greek word for ignorance is, is the, the Greek word agnoia. Again, another reference to agnostic or agnosticism. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that with the revelation of Jesus, man, we're out of excuses. Amen? Like we, we now have the full revelation of who God is in the person of Jesus. Like, man, what is God like? Look, look at Jesus. Just like the Athenians, we, we can't continue to exchange the, the glory of God for a lie. We can't just keep trading it for all these man-made idols. Are, are idols far from something to rejoice in? No, there's something to be repented of. Life, we talked about this last week, life is found in Jesus, not, not in our not in our multitude of lifeless idols. And, 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 and I want to I close, close with this this morning. Again, I want to wrap the fourth point into our close. Because not, not, we got to get, get to the heart, right? We, we got to give people a, a glimpse of the character of God, right? Uh, we, we can glean from the culture, but don't lean on it. But ultimately, here's the deal. At the end of the day, you got to get to Jesus. Amen. Ultimately, that's where Paul was going. You you, got to get to Jesus. Gospel clarity comes through Christ alone. Gospel clarity comes through Christ alone. It's like this. It's like this. I need uh, need contacts. I need contacts because my uh, my nearsightedness uh, is, is a problem, right? You don't want me driving around at night. Um, and it's not, it's not getting, it's not getting any better. And so without the clarity from these, from these lenses, uh, correcting my broken vision, like I, I'm, I'm in trouble, right? Uh, full disclosure, uh, I procrastinated on going to see the eye doctor all fall. And I waited until like, you're like, you know, you're, you're on day like 42 of the same pair of contacts. Right. And, and, and uh, but then uh, so I procrastinated, but then something magical happened. Uh, the company that supplies my contact lenses, they, they accidentally shipped them like without the prescription from the doc. <laughs> and so I know. And so, uh, and so I haven't had the heart to tell TSO who keeps try, trying to like schedule the appointment. I'm like, I already got the contact suckers. Um, here's my point. Church, understand this. We need to bring gospel clarity because a broken world will not see God rightly. Let me say that again. We need to bring gospel clarity because a broken world will not see God rightly. Now, I want to I go back to this idea of being image bearers of God. I want to I talk about design. I want to talk about how you and I, all of us, were designed. I, I think even, even within a Christless culture that is devoid of any understanding of the Bible, many are still asking, like, they're asking this question, maybe not out loud, but in their hearts, they're saying, Man, if there is a God, like, what is He like? If there is a God, what is, what is he like? And, and how, how can I know that God? And to this, I believe the Christian's response, after we address 
They're the heart. After we point to the, the character of the biblically revealed God, I think we need to ask this. Hey, you, we need to ask people if, and I realize that there, there's an if, you, you, creator God, right? Like we're talking to someone who doesn't necessarily, necessarily believe. If creator God made you in his image, think about your design. You are designed for love. You are designed for relationship. You are designed to personally know and to be known. David Peterson, I think, puts it so well. He says, if we are personal beings, able to relate to one another uh, with love and trust, God, our Creator, cannot be anything less. And he says, how can the impersonal give birth to the personal? How can the impersonal give birth to the personal? And that's why in verse 31, though, though this account from Luke is, is obviously a summary of the message that Paul preached that day, Paul reveals that the ultimate revelation, the ultimate revelation of this personal God was the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? And unlike the, the Greek man-made gods and idols that hit the lid of their creators and could not hold, listen, they, they could not hold people accountable for anything. The, Paul says the one true God, he does hold the right to judge. He does hold the right to judge. And see, our, our, our man-made idols and our gods, they allow us to operate according to our, our own standards, right? Like our man-made gods and idols, they, they let us operate according to our own st standards of, of relative righteousness. They cannot call us to a higher standard other than the standard of broken people. But Paul reminds the Athenians that God, the one true God, creator God, transcendent God, sovereign God, but personal God who came near, that God calls us to account. He calls us to repentance. He will, Paul says, He will judge the world according to the righteous standard of Jesus Christ. And so the question then becomes, have you received Jesus' righteousness in your place? Have you received Jesus' righteousness in your place? Have you personally trusted in the provision that God has made for your sin through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus? I'll close with this. We're done. You, you, want, you want clarity? You want clarity? Look to Christ. Y'all pray with me this morning.